Well, we continue on through Matthew this morning, and um, we continue on with narrative. As you remember, we've Matthew's gospel is built up of five discourses where we get the teaching of Jesus, and our first one, our first taste of that was Matthew 5 through 7, and we kind of slowed way down, right, because Jesus is, is teaching. Uh, he's teaching directly to us. And yet, like what we saw, narrative started in Matthew 1 through 4 and got picked up again in Matthew 8. Now we're in this time of narrative. And, and what we saw right after the Sermon on the Mount, of course, uh, Jesus' authority was seen in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember how it ended. You remember how it ended. The, uh, they were amazed at Jesus' authority because he was teaching them as one who had authority, as, not as their scribes. But now we've been seeing Jesus' authority in a different way, a different way. Uh, and the, if you remember in chapter 8, there was a sequence of basically three miracles, uh, and then we had a little interlude last week where there was some teaching on discipleship. That's how this section is structured. We have Jesus' authority demonstrated in miracles, and then we have an interlude teaching on discipleship, and now we get another bank of miracles, another three miracles, and then we'll get another, next week we'll get another teaching on discipleship. This all goes together. Jesus is calling disciples to himself. He's being a fisher of man. He's teaching his disciples that he currently has how to be a fisher of men. What's his summary message? His summary message is repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's drawn near in the person of Jesus, the one who has fulfilled all the Old Testament promises of the king, of the son of David, of the Messiah. But he's also giving foretastes of what his kingdom is going to bring in these miracles. Uh, In the end, right, in that final kingdom, Jesus, as uh, as God's steward king and God himself, will reign over all the world and over a world where there will be no sickness, no pain, no unrighteousness, no evil, nothing like that. And so what Jesus is giving, he's giving trailers, he's giving a foretaste of coming attractions. But as he demonstrates what the kingdom is like, he's coupling that with his teaching. He's coupling that with his message. If this is what the kingdom is, and this is the king, then you must repent. Then you must repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. What we're going to see in the miracles this morning, just like the first bank of miracles that we saw in chapter 8, the miracles are going to show more of Jesus' authority, but not only are they reveal his authority, they're revealing his identity. It's not just that the miracles are cool, it's not just like they're a light show or anything like that. It is, he is showing his authority, but he's showing his authority to reveal his identity, and as we walk through the passage this morning, what you have to see, what you have to see is not only his authority and how amazing that is, but you also need to see how do different people respond to that authority? How do different people respond to that authority? We already know, based on what Matthew has unfolded in the book of his book, his gospel, we already know that the proper response to Jesus' authority, to Jesus' identity, is faith. Uh, Repentance is turning allegiance from sin and self, and then entrusting. This is what faith is, entrusting oneself to the king, and therefore following him, following him in discipleship. That is the proper response to Jesus' 
authority, to Jesus' identity. But watch, watch as we walk through the narrative this morning, watch how different groups respond differently to his authority in his identity. And really, instead of a big, a big idea, so to speak, this morning, really there's a key question that's presented to us as we walk through this. And the question is this, why does Jesus demand your faith? Why does Jesus demand your faith? He's not asking nicely. He's demanding it. And why is that? Why would he demand your faith? And we see the answers in these three different episodes that we see this morning. So let's look at the first one, the first answer to that question. Why does Jesus demand your faith, your discipleship? Why does he demand it? Well, first, what we see in Matthew 8, 23 through 27 is this. Jesus has authority over creation. He is the creator. That's the first answer to our question. Jesus has authority over creation. He is the creator, and therefore he demands your faith. And let's see how this plays out. Look at verse 23 in Matthew chapter 8. And when he got into the boat, now that's... Let's remember where he was last week, just briefly. Remember last week, he already gave commands. You can look up at 818, where he had given commands to go over to the other side. He's on the kind of the, the north and just to the west a little bit. I have that backwards. It's, for you guys, it's like this, right? To the north and to the west a little bit. He's, he's there in Capernaum in Galilee. But then he's going to cross to the other side of the lake. He's going to go over there. And we said last week, the reason he's doing that, we saw itself play itself out, he's filtering his disciples, right? He's got these big old crowds that are following him because of all the miracles, but now he kind of wants to see who's going to really follow him. He's got one foot in the boat, so to speak. That's what we saw last week. He has one foot in the boat, and uh, then we have these two people that came up to him, one uh, to say, yeah, I'm going to follow you wherever you happen to be going, and he warned him, and then another who was already a disciple who wanted to take a leave of absence, and Jesus said, no, uh, I'm more important than anything else you have to do. But now we see kind of the conclusion of that. So verse 23 is kind of a hinge verse. When he got into the boat, his disciples, those who have heeded the warnings, who, have, uh, uh, who are, are committed to him, are following him. So they get into the boat. So now he's just with his disciples in the boat. And behold, verse 24, something happens. We're drawing our attention to it. That word behold draws our attention to what's happening next. There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. This word for great storm, the the word for storm here is actually not the normal word for storm. It's the word seismos, like seismograph, seismology, right? Earthquakes, it's normally the word for an earthquake actually. Now, it's not that there was an earthquake that occurred that caused the disturbance on the sea, but it's the idea of a great agitation, a great shaping. The, the wind is going so fast, or a sweep, it has swept down so fast onto the sea. This is, this is a great agitation on the sea. And if you know anything about the geography of Israel, you have uh, these high mountains kind of around the Sea of Galilee, and then the sea itself, or the lake really, is actually below sea level. And so these winds can come down the the sides of the hill and create a storm really, really quickly. 
And so we see this storm, a great agitation, a great shaking, so to speak, on the sea, on the sea. And the boat, this is serious, right? The boat's going up and down on these swells, up and down, and the boat is being swamped. It's filling with water. And then by contrast, Jesus is asleep. Now, we might stand and kind of marvel at that for a second, but actually what Matthew wants you to do, he wants you to go through your memory banks and thinking through the Old Testament. It's like, man, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Big old storm, and there's a guy sleeping in a boat. Uh, The Dallas folks might uh, recognize this uh, more immediately than the rest of you because they've spent some time in the book of Jonah uh, fairly recently. And that's what Matthew is alluding to. This isn't a quotation. This is an allusion, right? He's, Matthew is, is, this really happened. This really happened. But the way it happened and the way Matthew is presenting it to us, uh, he's drawing our minds back to the book of Jonah. And so we follow his lead and we turn back to the book of Jonah. Just to, uh, to and what he's going to do for us is Matthew wants us to compare and contrast what's going on in the book of Jonah. So let's start that. We'll go back and forth between Matthew 8 and the book of Jonah. But Jonah 1, Jonah 1. You remember Jonah, uh, that that prophet who received a command to go to the Gentiles in Nineveh, and uh, he ran exactly the opposite way. He gets on a boat to the Mediterranean Sea, and the Lord's response in verse 4 of chapter 1 is this. But Yahweh hurled a great wind upon the sea, And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So we've got a similar sort of situation. Now, all Matthew is doing so far, he's keyed us in to compare and contrast what's going on in Jonah with what's going on with Jesus and his disciples. There's a similarity there. There's a similarity. One, uh, let, let's, let's see what we can say so far. We know Jesus, uh, far from being a disobedient prophet, he is being the obedient son of God, and he is carrying out his mission, a mission to Gentiles, like Jonah's mission was to Gentiles. But Jesus is being obedient versus Jonah being disobedient. Being disobedient. Jonah was disobedient. Jesus is, diso- uh, is being obedient to his mission. He's carrying out his mission like he's supposed to. And yet we've got a storm. We've got a storm that threatens to destroy the ship. Let's carry on and look at verse 25 in Matthew 8. And they, the they is the disciples, that's all who's with him in the boat, they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Literally, it reads this way in the Greek, it's, Lord, save, we are perishing. This is really intense. Uh, they, they go and wake him up. Now, now, isn't it interesting, isn't it interesting that you've got seasoned sailors on the Sea of Galilee, and this is, they're afraid of this storm, so this is a big deal, uh, but they go to a carpenter who's asleep in the back of the boat. Uh, that's a little bit di- interesting. 
And they, they, they call him Lord. This, this term, knowledge of Lord, as we've seen, it's probably less. They don't, and we see later, they don't fully understand who he is yet. It's more than politeness, but they, they see that Jesus has this power. They've seen his miracles, miracles to heal, miracles to cast out demons. He's, they've seen that already. Miracles uh, uh, to cleanse sickness from afar. And so that's why they're coming to him, which is good. That's actually a right response to come to Jesus. They're recognizing we're out of our depth here, but we've seen some of the things that Jesus has done. He is powerful. He's the only one who can keep us from perishing, from dying, from drowning in this situation. So isn't that interesting that they're actually coming to him and, and they're coming to a carpenter. They're not coming to him for his seafaring expertise. They're coming to him because they know his power and authority as they've already seen it. They've woken him up and, and got him to help them. Now let's compare, go back to Jonah for a second. Like I said, we're bouncing back and forth to see the similarities and the differences. We've already seen the sailors there in Jonah. They're, they're crying out to their gods, right? They're calling out to their pagan gods, and they're doing all that they can. They're lightening the ship, and Jonah's asleep, He's fast asleep in the hold. And then we see this in Jonah 1.6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to, a thought to us that we may not perish. You see the similarity, don't you? But what's interesting, let's compare and contrast. So that in Matthew, we've got the disciples come to Jesus and call him Lord and We've got in Jonah, we've got the captain of the, the mariners, right? The representative of the, the sailors come and wake Jonah up and saying, hey, we're all crying out to our gods. You better call out to your God too to save us. Otherwise, we're going to perish, right? The disciples are coming to Jesus as God's representative. They're asking him to do something. They're not calling out to God directly. They're calling out to Jesus, save us, help us. And what's the result in Matthew 8, Matthew 8, 26? And he said to them, why are you afraid? The word afraid here is, uh, it can mean cowardly or timid or just plain old fearful, right? This is a fearful situation. You've got these waves, they're going up and down, it's swamping the ship, there's imminency of danger. And yet what Jesus, as he wakes up, he rebukes them, essentially, right? When he asks the question, why are you afraid? He's, he's really rebuking them. He's saying, you shouldn't be afraid. Now, notice what Jesus is and is not rebuking them for. He is not rebuking them for, um, for waking him up. Uh, they actually did the right thing in coming to Jesus. What he's rebuking them for is their fear. Their fear. Now, you're like, well, wait a minute. This is a pretty... This is a pretty fearful situation. We've got a storm here. We've got an imminency of danger. The ship is going to be swamped. And Jesus ties this fear to littleness of faith. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? The last time we saw that phrase was in Matthew 6, when Jesus was talking about anxiety concerning the things of life. Uh, don't be anxious about the necessities of life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to put on. And here he uses a similar phrase, O you of little faith. You're not trusting 
There, in Matthew 6, it was not trusting the Father to provide what they needed. Here, it's not trusting Jesus in what sort of a way, right? They're afraid, and that fear demonstrates a lack of faith. Where is the lack of faith? They came to Jesus, didn't they? Right? But while he was asleep, they came to Jesus. Doesn't that demonstrate a certain amount of faith that he has the authority to deal with this storm? Well, indeed it does. But the lack of faith is in showing this fear. Now, if you think about it a little bit, we, we begin to understand what Jesus is getting at. Jesus has already revealed himself to be, the first set of miracles in chapter 8, he's already revealed himself to be powerful enough to cleanse sickness, uh, even from a distance. But that wasn't all that he demonstrated. You remember in 817 how that ended, uh, uh, how Jesus himself was doing his miracles for a particular purpose, and it was due to what? It was to show that the prop, what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah was fulfilled. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And remember how we spent some time there saying, that comes from Isaiah 53, and what Isaiah 53 does is it outlines the ministry of the suffering servant who does take away his people's illnesses and pains and sicknesses, but it goes beyond that because in the rest of the chapter, the rest of the, the ministry outlined of the suffering servant, that servant dies on behalf of his people, on their behalf for their sins. In other words, he doesn't die in a boat on a lake. And so if the disciples would have understood, if they would have put the pieces together, they would have understood, oh yeah, Jesus is, who is Jesus? Jesus is that suffering servant. Jesus is the king. Jesus is on mission. And even though it looks really bad with these waves swamping the boat, he can't die in the boat like this. He hasn't finished his mission yet. Therefore, we're safe because we're with him. We're with Jesus. He hasn't finished his mission yet. Therefore, we're safe. So even though we've got these waves and and uh, the, the boats being swamped, imminence of danger, they could have still come to Jesus, but calmly, in faith. Uh, even though there's imminent destruction, they could have uh, woken Jesus up and said, Lord, uh, we know that you are powerful. We know that you are able to deal with these winds and these waves. We know you're not going to die or, uh, in this, this boat, but would you please take care of this? That's what Jesus is getting them to think about, right? They, they have little faith in regard to his identity. They have faith, but it's not fully grown yet. And then we see this. Jesus gets up, says, Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So notice what happens here. Jesus directly addresses the winds, and he directly addresses the sea. Why does he need to address both? Well, what if, think about this, right? If you would have just addressed the wind, uh, I don't know if you've been on a lake, maybe you've, you've gone out and you've gone tubing or water skiing or whatever, and at the beginning of the day, it's, it's really smooth and glassy, right? It's really nice, really smooth to ride on. But about the middle of the day, if you've got a bunch of tubers and boaters out there, the, the surface of the lake's pretty choppy, right? And it's, it's not smooth at all, right? And even if you had wind creating those waves, if the wind suddenly ceased, it would actually take quite a while before that, um, before that sea smoothed out, wouldn't it? That's why Jesus addresses both. Uh, the miracle is not just the wind suddenly ceased. That would be odd enough, right? The wind's blowing a gale, and then all of a sudden it's done. But then the, the surface of the lake would still be choppy, 
But the idea here is Jesus addressed both the sea and the, uh, the, the wind, and it goes to a glassy calm, like the beginning of the morning on the lake all of a sudden. That's pretty astounding. That's unusual. And look at the men's response. And the men marveled, verse 27, the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? It's kind of the question, what, what, in what category do we put this person? Uh, literally, it's kind of like, of what sort is this one? Of what sort is this one? This, this person that we've just seen address the wind and the waves. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, the way Matthew has set us up, we actually know the answer to that question. Matthew puts the pieces together. The disciples should have been putting the pieces together. Uh, and we can see the answer from Jonah. Let's go back to Jonah for a second. Picking up in Jonah 1.7, so the captain wakes up Jonah, right, to get up, call out to your God. Jonah 1.7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where are you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. Then he, they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and let, lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and vowed vows, made vows. So who gets to quiet the surface of the sea? Who gets to address the wind and the waves? It's Yahweh. And Yahweh alone, the creator God, gets to address those elements directly and quiet the sea. Contrasting with what we see in Matthew, the person who addresses the wind and the sea is Jesus. And so the answer to the disciples' question of what sort is this one? Well, this one is the incarnate God standing in the boat right next to us. In fact, you can see this again in Psalm 107. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 107, 23 through 32, uh, it actually rehearses the exact same scenario. In fact, it might be even a reflection on what happened to Jonah. Uh, you see the same thing. God gives a storm. He controls these elements. You've got sailors. They're afraid for their lives, and the sailors call out to God, and God is the one who calms the storm. But here, it's Jesus is the one who calms the storm, because Jesus has the authority of the Creator, because He is the Creator. He is the incarnate Creator in the boat. 
Why does Jesus demand your faith? Because Jesus is the creator God. He is the one who created you. He is the one who took a human nature to his divine nature. We celebrate that at this season. And if you come to him, you come to him in faith and you entrust yourself to him as the creator God. You recognize his power and his authority and you trust that, not just for initial discipleship, but ongoing discipleship. You recognize that if I'm following Jesus, Jesus has me, he's placed me on a mission and following him to proclaim the same message. We'll see that as Matthew unfolds to repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And you trust him as the creator God. He's not going to let you perish until he's ready for you to once you fulfilled your mission. You trust him as the creator God who has control over all, all the forces of nature, all the forces of creation. So That's the first answer to our question. Why does Jesus demand your faith? Well, Jesus has authority over creation. He is the creator. Well, we see a second answer in verses eight, uh, 28 through 34. Why does Jesus demand your faith? Jesus has authority over demons. He is the Son of God. Jesus has authority over demons. He is the Son of God. Look at verse 28. And when they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, now let's think of our geography then for a second. So he just sailed from Capernaum, kind of up here, and then he sails to the other side. The region of the Gadarenes, there's a, there's a city in what's known as the Decapolis, 10 Gentile cities. Uh, and there's a city known as Gadara. But Gadara wasn't just this, I mean, it was the city, but it also controlled territory. Gadara was about five miles south of the lake, so it's not right on the waterfront. But the city, we know from other historians of the same time, the city controlled territory that led up to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So this is probably a pretty broad region, so we don't know exactly where Jesus landed. There's a couple uh, options there. Uh, but uh, in general, what we do know is this. He's going to Gentile territory. This is Gentile territory, okay? Uh, on the other side from, the opposite side of the lake from Capernaum. So he reaches there. They're in the country of the Gadarenes. And two demon-possessed men met him, coming out from the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. You know, so we see with these folks, right, they've, they've kind of been, this, these two demon-possessed guys, they've been in this territory, and they've been waylaying people already. They've been opposing people moving in this area already. And so the idea is when it says they come out to meet him, it's not like the demon-possessed guys are coming out to have tea with Jesus. No, they are, they are actually, it's the language of opposition, they're storming out, and they're opposing Jesus. They're waylaying him, just like they have opposed other people passing that way. In verse 29, we get a, uh, kind of the, the crisis moment. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? As language, what have you to do with us? It's basically the idea, we have nothing to do with one another. We're on opposite sides of this war. What are you doing here? Get away. That's the idea. What have you to do with us? We have nothing to do with one another. But as we've said, right, as, as, as we've said already, as Jesus is, is going and traveling and he's doing these miracles, it's not just about his authority that he demonstrates, but that authority demonstrates his identity. And here what we see is 
These demon-possessed individuals know who Jesus is. They know his identity. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Now, we've talked a little bit about that phrase. What does that mean, the Son of God? Uh, we, we've seen it already in Matthew 1 through 4, right? Uh, the Father uh, designates, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And if you remember, we connected that with the storyline of Scripture, where in the beginning, God had always had a chosen king who was going to reign under him over the whole of creation. And that individual had a relationship with God as a son. That first son of God was Adam. He had this function as a king to rule over God's creation. And then that title got passed to Israel. Israel was called God's son. Uh, and then on to David. David and the Davidic line was called the sons of God. This is a functional title for ruling and reigning under God as a steward king in the world. And Jesus has been designated that, and he is, going to, is that functional king who will rule over all the world under God as a steward king. But here, a little bit more is added. In fact, we could say that it was already added in the Father's designation of the, the Son as Son, the beloved Son. And even Satan, back in chapter 4, calling Jesus, or at least asking him, if you're really the Son of God. And there... Here we've got beings in the spiritual realms who know already who Jesus is. He is the eternal son. So we have this functional role of being a son of God as a human, but Jesus is the ultimate one who's going to fulfill that role because he's the eternal son who's become man. And the demons recognize that. He is going to have that functional role, the one who's going to rule over all, over a perfect, pure clean kingdom under God, but he's also the eternal son. He's the eternal son. What do you have to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Which is a very interesting and revealing statement. If you read your scriptures, uh, in fact, you can see in Matthew, later in Matthew 25, 41, uh, the eternal fire, the, the, the lake of fire is is for, it's designed specifically for Satan and his minions. And sub, uh, it, it is also to be used for those who will not respond to the gospel and entrust themselves to Jesus. We can see that in Revelation. But here, the, the, the demons understand their ultimate fate. They know they're going to lose. They know that in eternity, Jesus... Jesus is the one who's responsible for the torments of hell. Jesus is the one who's going to torment the devil and his angels and any who do not submit to him as king. You see, and you might be asking a question, well, why do they automatically go to that? Why do, they, why do they automatically go here? Well, they understand that Jesus is going to be that king over all the world, and he's going to clean house. He's going to clean house. There's going to be no such thing as demon possession in the kingdom of God. It'll be totally clean, free from evil, free from evil forces completely. And they're kind of surprised, right? They know this is coming, but it's like, man, aren't you early? Are, are you here to torment us before the time? And here's what's really interesting. Jesus doesn't say anything yet, does he? 
Matthew carries this on in the narrative. He gives us a little background here to set the scene a little bit more. Verse 30. Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. They're in Gentile territory. That's why there's pigs. And Mark says there's about 2,000 of these pigs here. And the demons begged him, saying, if you cast this out, see, they know what he's going to do, right? Uh, if Jesus is the one who's giving foretastes of his kingdom and his ultimate kingdom is going to be clean, and here we've got two demon-possessed uh, men in front of him, then Jesus is, uh, they, they would expect him to clean, uh, clean them out, clear them out. So if you're going to cast this out, send us away into the herd of pigs. This is great. Uh, the demons, uh, Jesus hadn't said anything yet. He said nothing. They're like nervous, right? They're like, you know, when you get nervous, you talk a lot, right? It's like these guys are nervous and they're talking a lot. And here's the only thing that Jesus says in verse 32. And he said to them, go. Literally, go away. That's it. That's all he says in this episode. That's, it's literally one word in the Greek. and That's it, right? Go, go away. And now, this is interesting in comparison to the exorcists of Jesus' day. There were exorcists in Jesus' day, and what you find out is they would string together all sorts of mumbo-jumbo, magical words. They would do all sorts of uh, this and that to try to get the demons out, right? And maybe they'd be successful or maybe not. But here, uh, Jesus just says, go, and it happens. So they came out and went into the pigs, and I don't think the demons anticipated what happened next. Behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and the, uh, into the sea and drowned in the waters. I really wish, I want to I see the playback of this in, in heaven. There's a great, one of my books, it has a piece of artwork that tries to represent this, and it's got like pigs tumbling over themselves down the bank into the sea, right? But it's, Jesus just has to say, go. That's his level of authority, but then what's interesting, the camera shifts angles and shifts focus to uh, other participants. The herdsmen, verse 33, fled, and going into the city, maybe it's Gadara, although Gadara is like five miles away. It could just be another city in the region, because Gadara is a big old region. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Verse 34, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Who are the last people who came out to meet Jesus? The demons. It's the same language that's being used here. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Remember how we said that as Jesus demonstrates authority, he's revealing his identity, he is the Son of God, we see that here, but then you also want to see the responses of different, different parties, right? So we see the response of the demons, they're terrified, and then they get cast out and into the pigs, and um, the pigs die in the sea, and then the demons are just out in space. But um, notice here, the key focus in this section is on the response of Gadara, right? These Gentiles in this area. And what's interesting, I already alluded to it, in verse 34, there are several terms that are used, uh, the same terms that were used of the demons coming out to meet Jesus and talking to Jesus. The demons appealed, you know, if you're going to cast us out, throw us in the, uh, the pigs. The same word for appeal is used him. They begged him to leave their region. And what's, what's, what's that teaching us? It's teaching us that just like the demons opposed Jesus, these folks coming out of the city, despite seeing 
what's a positive miracle, they're seeing it as negative, and they're actually opposing Jesus. Now, why? Uh, We have to fill in some gaps here, but uh, let's think about this. Uh, Two demon-possessed men who have waylaid everyone from going this way, suddenly one guy shows up, and he, he just has to say, go, and the demons are gone into this pigs, and there's this big old herd of pigs that tumble down into the cliff into the sea. Uh, that's a lot of money represented by 2,000 pigs go, going into the sea, right? This is part of livelihood. This is part of the economics of the area. It's like this guy com- is coming in, and he's doing, wreaking some havoc. This guy's destroying uh, our livelihoods. Uh, I, I, um, it seems like the motivation is uh, you must be some sort of sorcerer or something, get away, because <laughs> you've already done enough damage in the region. Which really, if they had the right perspective, they would have understood Jesus is cleansing the region. He's cleaning house in a good and a helpful way. You must have acknowledged that Jesus has authority over evil and over evil forces. There are evil forces in the world, things, um, demons that we can't see. Satan is active, very much active in the world. We tend to ignore that. Satan has done a good job of masking his presence in the Western world. Oh, that's just superstition. But Jesus, despite those beings being active, Jesus has complete authority over evil and over evil forces. He is the Son of God, and he will clean out his kingdom of evil. But here's the thing. Do you see your need of cleansing and to draw near to Jesus, or do you ask him to keep his distance? There's a reality in which you can kind of see how powerful Jesus is and uh, what he can do. We understand that if, if one repents and turns to Jesus, he's cleansing his whole life, not just from uh, you know, potentially the demonic, but also of sin and evil, and that he's working righteousness, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, in an individual. But some people, they see that, and it's like, well, yeah, I, I, that's great. I do believe Jesus has that power, but I don't want him near me, because I, I like my sin. I like my evil. I don't want Jesus to come too close. Get away from me. Jesus will clean house in the life of a disciple. Are you embracing that or are you running away from it, like the Gadarenes? Why does Jesus demand your faith? One, Jesus has authority over creation. He is the creator. Two, Jesus has authority over demons. He is the son of God. And three, Jesus has authority over forgiveness. He is the son of man. Look at verses 1 through 8 in chapter 9. Jesus has authority over forgiveness. He is the Son of Man. Verse 1 in chapter 9. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So his own city is Capernaum. So he started this whole journey. He was in Capernaum. He went to the other side. They're saying, go away. So he goes right back. Uh, so this is what happens as far as the geography of the situation. So he's back in Capernaum. He's back in Je- uh, Jewish territory. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed or a litter or a a stretcher. And when Jesus saw their faith, 
he said to the paralytic, now let's just pause right there. Given what Jesus has already done in uh, chapter 8, people approach him in chapter 8, like the centurion and uh, the leper, and they approach him, um, and they have faith. The leper had faith, the centurion had faith, and they approach him, and they're asking, um, Jesus, would you heal me? Now, here, there's no direct appeal. They just show up. They show up with a paralytic on a, a stretcher, now, it's understandable what their appeal is going to be. They're going to ask Jesus to heal him. There's an implicit request. Um, and Jesus sees their faith, right? Uh, the, their very action of bringing the paralytic, and just with confidence, both the paralytic and his friends, uh, bringing him to Jesus, there's an implicit confidence and faith displayed in that. Now, given what was already happened in Matthew, we would expect that Jesus... Uh, would do what? He would heal the paralytic, right? That's what he would talk about. That's what he's done so far. But Jesus surprises us. He takes us a totally different direction. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart or take courage, my son, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now that's kind of taking us a different angle than you would think, right? Uh, You would expect him to say, you're healed, go your way. But instead, Jesus kind of shifts the whole conversation and says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. So he sees the faith of the group of friends. He's addressing the, par- uh, the paralytic. The paralytic evidently has faith too to have his friends carry him to Jesus. But Jesus is addressing sin. Why is that? Well, we said it this way before. We said it earlier in chapter 8. Uh, it's uh, the only reason sickness and disease and um, maladies like um, being paralytic uh, are in the world are because of sin. Now, that doesn't mean that the paralytic sinned, or the, the guy sinned before he was a paralytic, and then God struck him lame because of his sin. Sometimes God does that, but you can't, you can't bank on that, and the text makes no illusion that that's what happened. But we did say this, right? Back to the Isaiah 53 idea that The Messiah, the suffering servant, in his career, he's lifting illnesses and pains, but ultimately what he's going to do, he's going to go to the root issue for why there's illnesses and pains and disease in the world, period. So you can kind of think about that idea here, where why is Jesus talking about this guy's sins? Well, this guy has a problem, a serious problem. He's lame. He can't walk. But he's got a bigger problem, a bigger problem of Sin, the problem that we all have of sin. Sin against the holy God, and unless that sin is dealt with, we will experience God's torment in his judgment in the fires of hell for eternity. So Jesus, and he will deal with, he will deal with the, the paralysis here in a minute, but he's dealing with the more significant issue, the more significant malady first. But what's interesting here is who responds. Remember we said we're looking for the responses of different individuals. So he says this, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And this is the language, Jesus is pronouncing forgiveness. Okay, so he's he's pronouncing forgiveness to this, for his sins against God to this paralytic. Verse three, and behold, some of the scribes, said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now, why would they say that? Blasphemy is speaking against God 
or uh, claiming, uh, speaking against God, or claiming to be God, or claiming to do what only God can do. In this case, it's the, the final option. Uh, only God has the authority to forgive sins. We talked about this when we talked about forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is a word pronounced by the offended party. God is the one offended by our sins. It is not a naughty, sins are not just a naughty thing. They are offense to a holy God. They are a slap in the face to God. It's very personal when we sin against God. He's the offended party. And since he's the offended party, only he can pronounce forgiveness. Therefore, the scribes say, only God can pronounce forgiveness. This man, Jesus, is taking on himself a responsibility, an ability that only God has. That's why they say that he's blaspheming. Verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts or seeing their thoughts, uh, it seems like maybe uh, it could be that Jesus actually internally sees uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, sees what's going on in their minds, or it could just be he sees, after he says, um, your sins are forgiven, he sees a bunch of guys whispering together amongst themselves, and the logical deduction is that they have a problem with what he just said. So it could be either or. But regardless, Jesus perceives this, and he says this, why do you think evil in your heart? Now, what is he calling evil? He's calling, calling him a blasphemer evil. To call Jesus a blasphemer um, with regard to this is evil. Now, follow the implication. The only way that, um, uh, that uh, calling uh, a man who's forgiving sins, which only God can do, evil, is if he actually has that authority and that ability, if he actually is God. And Jesus proves it. Verse 5, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Which is easier not to do, but to say? What is easier to say? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to rise and walk? It's actually easier to say, your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Because if I say that, you can't immediately tell whether I'm being truthful or I'm lying. But if I say, rise and walk, well, that's pretty immediately obvious whether I'm lying or not. So the easier thing to say is, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus does this, but that you may know that the Son of Man, we met the Son of Man last week, remember that the, uh, Daniel 7, the exalted king, it's another way of referring to the Messiah, the exalted king over all the earth who uh, will have and uh, uh, who receive the kingdom and those who are with him, his saints will receive the kingdom. He has authority and he says, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go home. So Jesus says the harder thing, and he's setting up an argument. If Jesus can fulfill the harder thing to say, then he can fulfill the easier thing to say. That's the argument. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He says the harder thing. And verse 7, and he rose and went home. 
which means what? Not just that the paralytic was healed, as amazing as that is, but his healing demonstrates that Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Which means what? He's God. Because only the offended party can forgive and pronounce forgiveness of sins. This is actually one of the strongest texts, I would argue, in all of the Gospels for proving Jesus' divinity and that he claimed to be God. Right? He's implicitly setting, he's setting up the whole situation to show I'm the one who has authority to forgive sins. I'm the son of man. I am that divine and human son of man that Daniel talked about. And we note another response. Here we got the crowds, verse 8. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid. Now, why would they be afraid? Why would they be afraid? Something good just happened, right? The paralytic got healed. Well, it's not just the mere fact the paralytic got healed, and that's, that's kind of astounding enough. Someone who can't walk, all of a sudden he can walk. But it's also the fact that Jesus coupled that with the ability to forgive sins. Think of it this way. If God is the, alone the one who has the ability to forgive sins, and you were in his presence, he has the ability to either forgive your sins or retain your sins, you'd be pretty fearful, wouldn't it? And here, all of a sudden, you recognize this one right here, this son of man that's standing here, has the authority to forgive or retain my sins. That's pretty frightening. That's pretty frightening if you understand your sinfulness. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they also glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Was it right for them to glorify God? Yeah, it's only by God's power that this happened. Was it true to say that God had given authority to men, to Jesus, to do this? Yes, Jesus is a man, and God had given him authority to do this. They're right, and they're wrong. <laughs> they get it, and they don't. Because they do give glory to God, that's right. They do recognize that God had given authority to man, but they don't draw the connection. This is the Son of Man. This is the human and divine Son of Man standing right here. So They get it, but they don't. They get it, but they don't. Why does Jesus demand your faith? Because Jesus has authority over forgiveness. He is that Son of Man who will receive the entire kingdom, that authority from God the Father. You see, if you come to Christ, you must acknowledge that Jesus is God. That's what he claimed for himself. And has the authority to forgive your sins. Put it this way, if you seek forgiveness from your sins, trying to do it apart from Jesus, you will fail because he's the one who has authority to forgive sins. You can't come to the Father apart from Jesus. You must come to him as the, in faith. Now, what kind of faith, right? We saw the little faith of the disciples back in the storm, and we see the faith that Jesus is commending here with the paralytic and his friends. What sort of faith did they have? Well, they came to Jesus as healer. They were expecting a physical healing, and yet Jesus healed his deepest need, 
Jesus alone can and will and has the authority to heal your deepest malady of sin. And that's how you come to Jesus. And that should be immensely comforting. That should be immensely comforting. If you understand your sin, we've said it before, right? Sin is not just doing something naughty. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I made a mistake. It's not just a mistake. No, it is a slap in the face to the honor of the God of the universe, your creator, Jesus, who is the creator. But he has the authority to forgive sins based on his own death for his people as the suffering servant taking on the sins of his people on the cross, bearing the weight of God's wrath and offended dignity on the cross, and living the righteous human life that none of us could ever live. And based on that reality of his atonement, he has the authority to pronounce forgiveness for your sins. And if you understand your own guilt before a holy God, that should be immensely comforting even as Christians, even as those who are following Christ, we understand that we fall short on a day-to-day basis, and we tend to fall into this trap of thinking, well, I need to clean myself up in order for Jesus to accept me. Well, you can't do that, friend. You can't clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You come to him alone as the one who has the authority, the authority to forgive your sins. And he will, and he does, as he demonstrated with the paralytic. Isn't that comforting to know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and you can come to him and entrust yourself to him and commit to following him and your sins are not counted against you at all. Who is Jesus? There is no more important question you can answer. There's no more important question that you can answer in this world. Who is Jesus? As we enter the Christmas season, the culture is plenty happy to talk about Jesus during this time, at least a little bit. Culture is happy to keep him in the manger as a baby. But what we see in this passage is amazing. Here is what the baby grew into. Here is the incarnate Son of God. Jesus is the creator. He is Yahweh incarnate. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. And he demands your faith and allegiance. If you're not a disciple, if you're not following Jesus, Jesus demands your faith. He's not asking for it. He's not asking nicely. He demands it because he's the king. So come to him. He's good. Repent and entrust yourself to Jesus and follow him as his disciple. And if you are a disciple, you keep coming back to these realities. We keep remembering who Jesus is because that that builds our faith, that grows our faith, and we keep following because of how awesome and great and amazing Jesus is as the creator, Yahweh incarnate, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. Let's pray. Jesus, we lift you high. You are God. You are God incarnate. You came to this world. You have authority to forgive our sins, and we look to you. We thank you for even the, the ability, thinking of that, that your, ability, your authority to forgive sins, that we get the privilege of having communion this morning. As we see visibly portrayed your body broken for us, your blood spilled 
for your people to redeem not only individuals, but to redeem a corporate body, a church for yourself, a bride for yourself. Jesus, help us to keep following you and loving you and standing in awe of you no matter what. Grow our faith. Thank you for this time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.